You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Daryl, welcome to Real Faith Stories, man. It's really good to have you on the program today. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed just getting to know you. So I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Well, you have a very focused experience that occurred in your life with respect to the whole concept of abiding in the vine. And we're going to dig into that here shortly. Before we go there, Daryl, I would love for you to share your backstory about how you came to faith and what were the things that led up to this particular moment we're going to chat about today? Sure. I had some challenging upbringing. There was a lot of financial troubles that we had. My mom had me when she was 16. My dad was 20. So they came from very, very broken families, not just kind of like minor broken, just like really dysfunctional. And so they were escaping stuff and they had me. So I'm thankful they they could have done something different. The circumstances wasn't favorable for them. So they kept me and that was the first miracle of many in my life. But it wasn't without challenges. You can imagine two parents coming together that had a broken upbringing, trying to figure things out. But the interesting thing about my mom is my mom was a praying woman. I was talking to her last week about this. Let me let me give you an example. This is kind of crazy how she's in tune with God. And she said she was at a park when I was little and I was playing. And this was in Dallas, Texas at the park. And she said that God told her, one day I'm going to name a park after your son, Daryl. Come on. Yeah. And the mayor named a park after me not long ago. So wow, that's the praying mom I had. And so because I had a praying mom, I'm on the other side of this chaos, but not without challenges along the way. Now, one of the great things about my life is that early in my life, I had a, a, a sensitive heart, one that really hungered for the Lord. So at an early age, at a Baptist church in a small town called Bernie, Texas, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I was 12 years old. Mm. So that was kind of the the beginning of my walk with God. Did your mom have any other children? Do you have any siblings? I do. Yeah, I have a brother, a younger brother, and a younger sister. And in your walk with God, what has been the theme since the time you were 12? I'm sure the themes have changed and shifted. But when you look back, what is it that you sense the Lord was inculcating into you from that time you gave your life to Him? I'm just curious. Yeah, it's been a wonderful journey and one without me trying other lifestyles. And and I say that not to make assumptions that I was an an extreme person. You know, you go through your teenage in 20 years and you're just not exactly walking with God. I, I did that thing. But it was kind of funny, even when I was doing nonsense kind of stuff, God was always with me. I always felt the conviction. It was like he wrote his law on my heart. So it didn't take long for me to have this conviction of just being nonsensical kind of stuff. One of the inflection points was when I was edging the trailer park. We lived in a trailer, a little mobile home on the side of Highway 90 in Castroville, Texas. I was edging the skirting. And you got to be careful when you edge because you can crack the skirting. So you've got to be very careful. And so I'm edging and I'm thinking, you know, I really would like to know how people have houses without wheels. And I remember a good friend of mine, she had a beautiful house with a thick foundation and her dad was a banker. And I thought, well, then 
better be a banker <laughs> and then I can have a house with a foundation. And so it was like that inflection point was God teaching me where I fit. And I became curious at that point about money, like not as a selfish ambition, curiosity, but how does money work? You know, I'd had times where my parents knelt down and said, we might not have Christmas this year. I saw plenty of fights and stuff that was just really difficult. I just was wanting to know, how do people even make money? Because money's so impactful in people's lives. Like, not that it defines marriages, but it's the number one thing people fight about in marriages. And so how do you send people to college? How do you save money? How do people have an emergency fund? I mean, people talk about emergency fund. I was like, man, I just want to pay my light bill. And so I just became extremely curious. And so at 17, maybe 18, that curiosity, it's never quit. In fact, I mean, I'm still curious. I just two years ago, finished my master's at Texas A&M Law School in this field. I still have curiosity in this space. It's like never ending. It's not necessarily math, it's people. And so we're learning a lot, even in this specific area called behavioral finance, where it's a collision of neuroscience, psychology, and traditional finance. And that's become an area of study and money. What God has done, to answer your question, is God has uh, put it in my heart to play a role in his kingdom on helping the body of Christ understand money and the 2,000 scriptures that are associated with money. That's all. Just 2,000. Just 2,000. Fascinating. So obviously, the trajectory of your life was impacted greatly by that thought about money. Please explain how you got involved in the career choice you got involved in. What did that look like then? Again, total God. It was awesome. Growing up, my dad was hit or miss. He just was trying to make ends meet. And probably like a lot of people, trying to get affirmations from anybody was gold. And so every affirmation I had, I remembered. And one of them was in college. I was doing accounting and the professor came to me and she sat me down. She goes, you really have an affinity for this stuff. Can you tutor other kids? And that was just a compliment of gold. But that was God, God using her. And then I took an investment class and the professor said, here's a bunch of fake money and whoever makes the most at the end of the semester gets the best grade. And I won that course. So I put that together. I understand this credit side of business and banking, accounting and finance, but I, I'm in this space of curiosity, but not a clue of what career has these elements so I actually go to the library and I study at the time everything I could. Internet was just getting started. So I studied whatever was in the Dewey Decimal System at the time, trying to find a career. And I found this one called Certified Financial Planner. And I thought, well, that kind of has the profile of all the things that I feel like I'm good at. So December 10th, 1999, I graduated. And December 11th, I started working in this industry. I got a job at a Fortune 100 company. I thought I was getting a salary, but they kind of manipulated me and I was commission only. And so <laughs> there I am starting a very humble process to this career, and it was very humbling. Humble beginnings are common for many people. God has done some incredible things through that career choice, hasn't he? Oh, it's been remarkable. I started out at a career where I was commission only, and the only people I knew were people in trailer parks and college uh, college graduates, both of which are broke. So I knocked on every door in the city of San Antonio and beyond trying to find a client, and right before I was about to be let go, because I had a, a letter saying I didn't sell enough product that I was going to be let go, God introduced me to this guy. His name's Joe Williams, and he was a big, successful business owner. And he said, I'll give you a shot, young guy. And he did. And that was enough to keep my job and give me enough confidence from that 
point on that I became rookie of the year and then ultimately stayed with the company, became partner of the year wow. and was on a path to New York or Chicago at that point. And my wife and I decided we wanted to stay in San Antonio. God had put it on my heart because I really wanted to start a business years ago. I remember my dad losing his job and him crying and us financially having so many challenges. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and have kind of that independence. So I decided to start my own business and financially it didn't make sense because we didn't have the money to do it, but I did it anyways. And God nudged me and he really orchestrated everything. It was really beautiful. With respect to that whole transition into starting your own business, what did that process look like? We left the company that was a, a very large company with a good compensation plan. And my wife decided to quit her job as a teacher and stay at home with our newborn. So I'm not sure if that was very thoughtful or even prayerful. I'm in my 20s and very much a go-getter, get-her-done kind of guy. I had at this point developed a self-confidence that I can break through and do things. Very independent-minded. I don't cry anymore. Like I just stopped crying because I cried so much as a kid. So I, I'm just really almost calloused. And so I quit with just almost arrogance that I can do this. And God was really sweet because I struggled quite a bit and I did a cash advance to pay our mortgage. And I'm a financial advisor, mind you. Like it's a, that's like a shop teacher with no fingers. Right. I pull into my office and we had one car because that's all we could afford at the time. And I forgot the office keys. And so I just start crying. This was like at 4.30 a.m. I'm trying to work my way out of this. And I remember what God said. And he said, and it might sound odd, but it was like almost he said, put your money where your mouth is, which was kind of interesting because I did my giving when it was convenient, but I never did my giving as a self-sacrifice in such a way that that I was committed and that I trusted him. So at that time, I was completely broke. I had no other choice. My hard work wasn't working. I made a commitment to God at 4.30 a.m. in a parking lot, just crying, that I was going to give my first fruits to him. So I made a commitment to give and I've never stopped giving since that time. And that has been really the antidote for me in a lot of ways to worrying about money. And so that was an important God moment for me. That so resonates with me, Daryl. My wife, Cindy, and I made a commitment right when we got married to start giving and start tithing. We have eight children. In the early years, we look back and say to ourselves, how on earth did we get through that financially? And we know God just provided. It didn't make sense sometimes. He even gave us the ability to give away vehicles in the midst of this to people that needed them, but he kept giving back. So anyway, I just want to encourage anybody hearing this, that if you're struggling with whether to give, I think you'd agree, Daryl, go for it, right? Absolutely. It's 100%. And and so what's interesting is I've counseled thousands of people, not like 100, not like 10, but literally maybe even 10,000 if I added it up. People kneecapped to kneecap about their money. Many of them are in the body of Christ just because they come to me and they know that's the worldview. I look through things. But I find it interesting that our giving is really falling short. Many Christians give when it's convenient. I was talking to a Christian just the other day and he struggles giving. And then you wonder about the anxiety that we deal with in society today. I don't think it's a disconnect that our giving is so low and our anxiety is so high. Mm. The world collectively gives about 1.5%. That's kind of the world number. And Christians give about 1.8%. But when you dig into the surveys a little bit more, I don't know if it's Barna or who, but 
if you look at practicing Christians, the ones that actually go to church and read their Bible, that's about 3%. So we're doing twice as good as the world, but still falling short. And um, when I sit down with people, it's really, we're not doing much giving and we're doing a lot of worrying. And I, I'd like to see some modifications there. And so I, I don't really push people to jump to the 10% because I'm very practical in that regard. But I do think that making marginal efforts to get there is important. I think it really is a litmus test for our trust in God. And we can talk about trusting him, but when we give our money, because God says it, you can love God or money, but you can serve one of two masters, but not both. And so we think it's kind of cute that we give a little extra to, to the waiter or waitress, but this is not cute. This is God giving us specific direction with our money. So I think it's time us Christians kind of take this a little bit more seriously. To that point, you shared with me that you had an experience with respect to that whole stress level you were living and the power of the vine branch relationship. Let's talk about what happened there. Yeah. So just like everyone else's flesh, mine is pretty strong, especially when you get into a place where you feel like you can do things. I had this attitude of mental toughness, extra effort, I would always say. And that's not exactly a a Christ-dependent attitude. Yeah. And I've read a lot of self-help books over the years, and you can develop a lot of these hacks. But I had um, gotten to a place in my career at this time I had started our business and I'm getting to a place where there's some momentum. In fact, at this time, it's interesting, Dave Ramsey had called us up and asked us if we could have a, an endorsement relationship with him. So Dave Ramsey is now watching what we're doing and he's endorsing us and we have this amazing endorsement. So we have people calling us all the time because of Dave's reach. So I'm getting a lot of momentum, which is cool, but I actually was struggling with a little bit of stuff because I was in my 30s. And I just felt a little deflated. I know it sounds silly, but you know, I was starting to get a little older. I, I was getting hurt in some of the sports I was playing. And I'm really horrible at golf, so I couldn't really pick that up. So just a little frustrated. Not a big deal. Then I placed a trade on a client's account, and I messed up, and I lost him $10,000, and he was real mad. Not a big deal, but kind of frustrating. I went for a jog in San Diego, and I left my phone at the hotel. This was at a conference. I got lost. It was supposed to be a two-mile jog. It was like a 12 mile jog. I was late. Whoa. Just all these little things that were happening kind of collectively. I was just kind of beating myself up, just kind of this like, I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. And so, beautiful weekend. It was February, I remember. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to chill with my family. And my wife is expecting our third child at the time. So, I'm going to go to the grocery store. My two year old daughter says, Can I come with you? So, put her in the back seat in her car seat, driving along. It's like sunglasses and leather jacket kind of day. We roll down the windows. And just a minute later, she screams, and she had kicked the electronic up button on the Jeep, and she had put her hand out the window, so her fingers were stuck in the window. So I was going to try to swerve over. There was a car. I ended up swerving into a McDonald's parking lot. I, I don't know. In my mind, I was going to have to punch the windows because I just couldn't get it down with a button. She's screaming. Finally, she let go her, of her foot. Um, her finger was severed. It was horrible. Oh, like, there was blood all over her little dress. So five minutes up the road, less than that was a hospital. I go to that hospital. They get her in the room. That night, they successfully reattach her finger, which is a blessing. And today she's 16. She's got a little awkward finger, but it's a part of the story. But that night, my wife loses our third baby mm. because of the stress of all the situation. So at this point, it's kind of building up. And at that point, I'm really done with MTXE because I can't really mental toughness extra effort my way out of this. And I had known this guy, his name is Bill Loveless, and I called him up. He had some gray hair and he read the Bible more than me, frankly. I read it when it was convenient, almost like my money attitude. And I called him up and I said, 
I need to unpack this because I have no idea what's going on in my life right now. And I, uh, I'm really kind of at wit's end. And I don't remember exactly what God had said, but I remember what God said through him. And that was, are you done yet? Are you done living the life I never intended you to live? And at that point, Bill unpacked what it meant to have this vine branch relationship that I am the vine, you are the branch, those that abide in me and I in you, they will bear much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. We unpacked that scripture in so many different ways. In John, we went to Galatians and talked about the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, self-control, all of which I was trying to manufacture on my own with God's help. So I'm using air quotes right now with God's help. Mm -hmm. And what I recognize that those, those fruits were not something I manufactured, but I just simply as an overflow of my abiding in God, my trusting in him, not just with my money. I mean, that was an element, but in everything, every facet of my life, whether it was my children or my health or my my attitude, I mean, every facet of my life. And so really just understanding what it meant to abide in him. He spent about seven years mentoring me and and his mentoring was all around this idea of abiding in him and trusting in him and the vine branch relationship and going through the Old Testament, how you can see elements of this in the Old Testament, the New Testament, in the past and the present and the future. And so that's been the very essence of my life today is just trusting in him, not about tomorrow, not about the past, not even in the present, but just in this moment, like moment by moment dependence upon him. And so that was the inflection point that in a lot of ways I really got saved. I think there was a point where I might have checked a box to go to heaven, which was an important box to check. I don't discount that. But there's two sides of the cross. There's the side of the cross where I received salvation, but there's also this life in him that I hadn't yet tapped into. And I think about it like just down south of me, there's a lot of people that have oil. And I think about like their lives and I ask myself, how long have they been rich? And they might respond and say, well, I've been rich since they tapped oil in my backyard. Well, not really. You've been rich your whole life. You just now tapped into it. Mm. That's the same thing for me as I was rich my whole life when I exchanged my spirit at 12, but I had never tapped into that oil, so to speak, that, that Texas tea, we call it. And I never tapped into it until I was in my 30s. And so when I tapped into it, I did get to experience that peace that passes all understanding. And obviously the flesh still comes up and sin patterns and all that stuff, but it's different. It's totally different. And so that's been the catalyst for defining who I am now is is not somebody who's an MTXE kind of guy, but a guy that just trusts in him in each moment. You know, as you said, you've probably sat knee to knee with about 10,000 people and you're counseling them financially. And the whole being able to tap into that life that Jesus promises, that freedom, how would you counsel somebody listening to this right now that's saying, oh, I am yearning for that. I know that's missing in my life. I'm stressed and I feel like I'm manufacturing everything in my life in my relationship with the Lord. What would you say to them, Daryl? Generally speaking, I'd ask them, what have they done in the past to work through this? And then I'd ask them the question, how's that working for you? Yeah. And I know that's a kind of a tongue in cheek, but, but the reality is, is I want to get them away from these patterns of what they've tried to do in the past to get through that. How's that working for you? So what I would then introduce them to is this idea of what Jesus meant in this John 15, 5 relationship, this vine branch relationship. And and I would ask that they digest the word of God. And gosh, it, it's such a good question because I've literally, like you said, had this conversation a thousand times, but it's always been so circumstantial because people are just uniquely wired. But I do take them back and it's a process of taking them back to 
to this vine branch relationship. And I do it with a group of men in a Bible study every week. So I've got close friends that they wrestle with life stuff and I'll help them understand what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not just in heaven, right? That's mm-hmm. the that's the fire and brimstone message, which is a legitimate one, but life on earth, right? I'm the life. And so I'll I'll take them there, Brian. But the problem is, is that intellectually it connects, and then the worries of life creeps up on them and they forget. Like the old testaments in the New Testament's full of good people who forget. And so for me, when I teach them this, it's not important enough that I just educate them. I actually have to walk alongside of them and be there in terms of a relationship because they have to be reminded over and over again until it becomes a fabric of how they think and make decisions. I know that's not a direct answer to your question, but it is relationship-oriented. I get this picture as you're sharing this, Daryl, of a father talking to a child, and the child is looking, is going squirrel and just kind of looking to the side as the father looks at them. And the father gently grabs their chin and brings it back to his eyes. Here you go. Now look at me. Here's what I'm trying to say. Do you hear me now? And it's like constantly refocusing on the father, right? It is. And God has this whole thing hacked because he says, even in Hebrews, he says, let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some of them are doing right now. I'm paraphrasing Hebrews, but the idea of being able to understand what it means to abide, but then putting yourself in a community of other believers that help encourage each other to do that is how God has orchestrated this body of Christ. Here's where it's tricky. Not a group of believers that say, And I understand the benefits of self-help books. Hey, let's do a Bible study on a self-help book. Okay, whatever book it is. It could even be a Christian book. We're 10 men and we're going to get together and we're going to read this book. It's a book about how to be a better man. It's with God's help. Like if you read that book, it's with God's help. That's actually problematic because even though it sounds good, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we have to recognize what his truth is, this vine branch relationship, not this idea of, I'm going to do life with God's help. Like when somebody prays and they say, Lord, help me to be a better father. And I understand your heart's in the right place, but think about that for a second. What you're suggesting is, is that you're the source and God's going to help you be the source. And books across the Christian perspective, even pastors have this message. And so what I would suggest is putting ourselves around a group of believers that truly believe that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and then holding each other accountable to staying on point with that. Because God does know, because he says in Hebrews, hey, don't give up meeting together. God knows that we drift into our own, becoming our own deity. He knows that. So getting with a group of believers and saying, hey, how is your walk? Not just with God's help, but your moment by moment dependence upon him. I hang out with a lot of Go get her, get her done. Very successful entrepreneurs, and we've we've got to wrestle with this. I mean, it's really hard because we have a track record of just getting it done. It doesn't work. God eventually puts us in a place, especially with our families, where that methodology falls short. For sure, and we have to come back to Him. I, that's long winded, but but it's important to me, and I that's kind of the way I think about our walk. Yeah, and as you're sharing this, the phrase that keeps coming to my mind is atmosphere matters. Where you place yourself with respect to your relationships, 
your church, all of it is so critical to the ability to think properly and to connect to the vine, isn't it? It is. A lot of my friends are mega pastors, people you would know. Like I see the ugliness and I I have a heart for them. But the reality is, is that I go into church and I see a pastor do a sermon that's a motivational speech that if you take out just a few scriptures he threw in there, anyone could have done that. That was a motivational speech. And so I'll leave church. My wife knows how important this is to me. And I, and I would tell her that's a motivational speech. And I teach my kids that. Not that I'm undermining that pastor. I want to be very careful because I support that pastor probably more than most people. But I want my family to know that even in the body of Christ, there's a difference between abiding and not abiding. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not a minor detail in our walk with Jesus. It is not minor. It's, it is everything. So when I'm around the body of Christ, I'm not looking for perfection, but I'm also not willing to compromise. So in the midst of where God puts me, God can put me in an environment where it is like this self-help kind of environment, maybe with a Bible study group or a, a church. And I won't go in and start criticizing. That I won't do, but I will make sure my family knows, hey, we're in this environment. I want you to know the difference. And so I say all that because the atmosphere, I, this is how I would talk about the atmosphere. The atmosphere, I'm very flexible because I'm very open to where God puts me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm not going to deviate from what God has put on my heart to understand that there's a difference between a life and the life. What is the difference between a life and the life? It's dependence. It's moment by moment dependence. And this is not easy. I mean, I have my friends, some of them are like, I just can't get around that because what's my part? Your part is to trust him. But I know, but what do I do? You trust him. I, I, come on, Daryl. I know. Give me more. What's the five things I need to do? Well, you tr- you trust him. Well, it's I guess it's that. But you know, there is some things that we need to do. Yeah, we respond. So I would give you that we respond to his relentless pursuit of our lives, and our responsibility is to respond to his relentless pursuit. So if you have a thought and you execute that thought, I just want you to know that God put that thought there. And your ability to respond to that is not your own skill set necessarily, but it's God that uniquely gave you that thought and put you in an environment to execute. And so the idea is is not to get so hung up in your checklist of the day, but to put your checklist together and say, God, you gave me these thoughts, and these thoughts are not my thoughts, but your thoughts, and I just want to pray through these checklists. By the way, Brian, I have a lot of different hacks in life. Like I've got all my systems. I've got my daily system, my weekly system, my monthly system, I get all the sleep, I my health nut, I check all the boxes and all, but all of that is a byproduct of what God has put on my heart. It's not anything that I necessarily do. So the idea behind all this is that it's a moment by moment dependence in all areas of our lives. And I would say this, our responsibility is to respond to God's pursuit. And we can't do that if we're so busy chasing other things. And so We just have to have this awareness of his pursuit in our lives in this moment. It just seems that the whole trajectory of our lives after we come to Christ is this stripping of self-sufficiency in every form, ultimately. And that's where the freedom and the joy explodes in our lives, doesn't it? Yeah, I think this self-sufficiency is not just a marginal concern. I mean, we're really making ourselves our own gods in a lot of ways. That's problematic because that's a commandment. 
right? We think about the Ten Commandments. We're like, oh, that's cute. You know, it's we can't put no gods before. I'm not making a little a golden statue. And so we think we've got that box checked when it comes to the commandments. But we really fall short because we make ourselves gods. And we do it when we become self-sufficient. And we do it when we recognize that we're responsible for peace. And it's crazy because I see a ton of rich people, not just kind of rich, like the uber rich and wealthy people that, like I said, people you would know. And it just doesn't work. Like it's unbelievable how this pursuit of self-sufficiency, they're all pursuing the same thing. God has put it all in our hearts. He's put it all in our hearts that we want peace. We long for joy. So we try to find all these ways to do it. And we, it all falls short because there's still a hole in our heart that hungers for Jesus and to bow down before our creator and call him Lord and Savior instead of ourselves. But self-sufficiency is really our biggest problematic, and the self-help books are playing into that. And I read them. Heck, I even write them. But the reality is, is that when it comes down to it at the end of our day, Charles Munger just died, one of the richest people in America, and it all falls short. All of it falls short. There's no way for us to manufacture those fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity. There's no way for us to manufacture it. We can temporarily kind of change the trajectory temporarily, but we will come back and we'll fall short. And it's only Jesus that can fill it. You know, you mentioned books. You've got a book coming out soon, don't you? Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. Biblical Responsible Investing. So what I wanted to do was help the body of Christ understand that there's different resources out there to integrate our faith into the way we think about investing and money and all kinds of stuff. And there's just an interesting marketplace that's developed some of the tools today. You can now screen out companies that are antithetical to a biblical worldview and sometimes hostile. So we've seen this in the marketplace, but it's time for investors and body of Christ to say, okay, I don't want to own Target anymore. Do I have Anheuser-Busch? I don't want that anymore. I mean, I think Christians are saying enough's enough. And so I talk a little bit about that. I talk about the Christian sharing alternative uh, out there. And so just helping Christians understand when we go back to the very beginning of what it means to be a Christian, we were called people of the way. That's what we were called, people of the way. There's a different way of doing things. And so I address, hey, there's a different way to do money for Christians. And I talk about it from the innovation that exists today in the marketplace. And is your book out now? It'll be out January 25th. Yeah, so I'm excited about that book. I didn't mean for it to go to the consumer. I actually was working with Goldman Sachs and BlackRock and the big institutions, and I was trying to make a case to them because I had the executive's ears that they should be thinking about the, the Christian marketplace and take it seriously. That fell on deaf ears, but I, I tried. And so the original content of the book was made for executives of these large institutions. But when I had my friends and family read it, I actually reorchestrated the content to make it to where the consumer could enjoy it. So you you feel that change in the audience a little bit throughout the book, but I still think it'll be readable for a lot of people. That's great. How can people find out more about you? PaxFinancialGroup.com. LinkedIn's a good place to connect with me. And I do have a podcast called Retire in Texas. Try to give a weekly update on what's salient in the marketplace or general financial planning topics. My last one was on how to avoid your kids being spoiled <laughs> if you have money. But I'm gently taking people closer to Christ is my objective. Well, as we finish here, I'd love to have you pray for our listeners, please. Yeah, I'd be happy to. 
Lord, it's just been a pleasure. Even for me to reflect, Brian's good at asking questions. It's a gift. It's a blessing and it's a gift for me just to reflect on what you've done in and through me over my life. And the fact that I'm even here today is just a gift. But Lord, ultimately, the idea of all my words, ultimately, I want them to fall on one life, just one, just one person listening out there that's saying, I'm a Christian and this is just not working for me. Lord, I know that that one person has tried a lot of different things. Lord, I ask today that you give them a heart to see the goodness of what it means to abide moment by moment with you. And that one individual gets to experience the overflow of love, joy, and peace. So Lord, that one person listening today, I ask that you supernaturally allow them to experience you today. And I thank you for that. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, you're welcome. It's my pleasure, Brian. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.